0: Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you've joined us today. Last Sunday, um, I talked about our vision as a church for this new year, for 2017. Really, it was more of a, um, a compass setting, a direction for us, and a set of detailed plans. If you were not able to um, be here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go on our website. You can download the message and uh, listen to it there. But today, I want to invite you to join us as a team at this church as we work together to accomplish the work of God here in this community and with those that we partner with. Now, we tend to think of church as a building, a facility, maybe a human organization, but God thinks of the church as the visible representation of his son, Jesus Christ, here on earth. That's why it's called the body of Christ in Scripture. We read this in 1 Corinthians 12, 27-28, one of the many places where the church is referred to as the body of Christ, and it simply says, Now you are, speaking to those who made a commitment to follow Christ, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Now to be clear that um, it's not talking about just some spiritual, invisible, floating idea, body of Christ thing. It goes on in the next sentence to start up by saying, and in the church, God has appointed, then it goes on to talk about the different gifts and uh, positions of responsibility in the church. So, what you see here is what you see in many places in the New Testament is that the church and the body of Christ are interchangeable terms for the same thing. What that means practically is that you cannot follow Jesus. You cannot make a commitment to Jesus apart from the church, which is his body. You know, for example, if one of the disciples in Jesus' day, when he was here physically walking around, if one of the disciples in Jesus' day had kind of walked off uh, away from the group and away from Jesus, but still insisted that they were following Jesus, the rest of the disciples would have said, what do you mean you're following Jesus? He's right here and you're heading over there. You're heading in opposite directions. You're not following him. I mean, You can't say that you are following somebody when you're walking away from their body. So what this means now is that if we are not a part of the body of Christ somewhere, we are not practically following Christ. We're following more our imagination of Christ or the idea of Christ, but, but we're not practically following him. So the question is, how do you know then if you're a part of the body of Christ? Well, it's the same way you know if any body part is attached. Two questions. Where is it attached and what does it do? So every Christian should be able to instantly answer these two questions. What church are you a part of, and what do you do there? And if there's hesitation, if there's confusion, if there's uh kind of a blank stare, not sure exactly what's going on, but there's a good chance they're not actually following Christ. Because the body of Christ is not just the invisible idea of Christ. Like all bodies, it's physical. That's why it's called the body of Christ, not the idea of Christ, not the truth about Christ. Not the teachings of Christ, but the body of Christ. It's physical. And as with anything physical, it shows up in real space and time, in real places, with real addresses, and real people. So the question then this morning is, how how do you join the church, the body of Christ? Well, in the New Testament, the the church you belong to was was very obvious. Uh, You joined by risking your life and showing up at at an event meeting like this because, of course, in the political environment back then, it, it was, well, it was against the law, uh, punishable by death to be a part of Christ's followers. And so that had the effect of making sure that everyone who showed up was really committed because of the political environment. Well, now showing up is not dangerous at all. There's lots of exits. You can run out of here at any point in time if you feel uncomfortable. So what that means is it's impossible to know now who is choosing to be a part of a particular expression of the body of Christ, and who's just hanging out for a period of time? Now, we've noticed here at Seabreeze, and I think this is true of any church, that people tend to relate to us as a church in one of three ways. There's probably more categories, but they seem to break down into these three categories. You may have heard me mention these before. There are those that we would say they, they interact with us like, like a fan would. And you know we love fans. I mean, what team would not love their fans? And what I mean by fan is that they, they really like what's going on here. And so they're here on Sunday and they show up at other events as their schedule allows, as long as there's not something you know more important, and, and as their interest you know continues to be piqued by what's going on here. And then there are those who, who move beyond just being a fan, they really like what's going on and, and enjoy being a part when they can. Then there's there's some that kind of take it to the next level, and they, they also want to be a supporter. So they not only like and, and benefit from what's happening here at Seabreeze, but they've decided, you know what, I, I want to I help. I want to contribute in some way. So they, they volunteer and help out in some way, or they, they contribute some money, and, and they're our supporters. And again, just to be clear, we love our fans. We love those who decide to, to help out and, and support in some way. But then there's the third group, and these are the team members. They are the ones that decide to commit to this church and join the body of Christ here. And the key difference is that one word, commit. They decide to make a commitment to be a part and to connect and to advance what's happening here. Now, we could probably, I I, I might be able to sit down and have a conversation and I could maybe guess where you might be on these three. You could probably tell me right away if you wanted to or I could guess. But the problem with me guessing, or those of us in leadership guessing, is there's a good chance we'd get it wrong. I mean, you can't just look at someone and say, oh, that's a fan, that's a supporter, there's a team member. You, you just can't tell. Because the commitment is, is something that's inside. It's, it's invisible. It's real, but it's invisible. So what we've decided to do is rather than just guess and kind of identify where people are by our guessing and maybe potentially get it wrong, we just simply say, you tell us. We're not going to treat you bad if you're not a team member. You're welcome to attend and be a part and enjoy and allow God to speak to you. But you tell us if you want to be a member of this team, if you are committed not only to Christ but to his body now here on earth, this church. So the question then this morning is, what does it look like to commit to this church? In the New Testament, we find a description of of uh, what it means to make a commitment to Christ and to his church. And the phrase that probably best identifies what this commitment looks like is that it is an attitude of the heart. A commitment to Christ isn't just deciding to follow a set of rules. It's more of a, an attitude, a direction of of the heart. And so we use seven statements out of the New Testament that that we refer to as heart attitudes. This isn't everything that God says in the New Testament, but these seven statements are pretty pretty much cover a lot of what the New Testament says about how we are to relate to each other and how we are relate to the church. Now these are hard attitudes because the hard part means we do these things because we want to. These are not just rules that, oh, I gotta keep that rule. No, we we decide that we we really want to do these things. This is this is who we want to be. These seven attitudes are describe the kind of people we want to be. And then the, the term attitude, it, it describes more the direction that we're heading than our ability to perform these seven perfectly. None of us do these seven perfectly. But whenever we get off course and whenever we fall down, we get back up and we use these seven to kind of get ourselves back on track. This, this is the direction that we have committed to. Now, what I want to approach these seven heart attitudes from the angle I want to approach them from this morning is how these seven attitudes help us build trust amongst ourselves as members of this team. I mean, if if we were a physical body, then we would be connected physically, but we're not. And so the connection that exists between us is primarily our relationships with one another. And trust is the key to a relationship. And these seven attitudes, hard attitudes, identify how trust is built in this church. Because what bonds us together as the body of Christ is, is our relationships, it's our, our, the level of trust. And honestly, this is true of any team. Anytime you get a team of people together, whether it's for a business purpose or whether it's a family team or whether it's a sports team, every team rises and falls on the level of trust that exists and those who are members of the team. And when trust begins to go down, the ability of the team to accomplish its mission is severely hampered, and the team begins to unravel. So these seven are how we build trust amongst ourselves as we accomplish what God wants to accomplish as a church. So these are the seven. I'm going to review each of them for for you from the angle of how they build trust. Hard attitude number one is put the goals and interests of others above my own. This comes out of Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me ask you, are you drawn to trust someone who is full of selfish ambition? You would not be wise to trust a person who is full of selfish ambition. Why not? Well, if their big drive is to advance themselves... That's what selfish ambition means. They're they're ambitious and it's all about them. If that's their big drive, what that means is they have no real interest in you. So you are either helping them or hurting them in getting what they really want. You're, You're a tool in their hands to accomplish their ambition. Their interest in you will only last as long as you're useful to them. And if you get in their way, watch out. They'll make you pay for it. So in an environment of selfish ambition, people will act in their own best interests. They won't act in the interest of the team. They can't risk doing that. It's, it's every man and woman for themselves. You, you can't risk and advance the team when everybody's trying to use everyone else for their own ambition. Well, You, you, better, you better get your head on a swivel and keep your eyes open and see what's going on. You, you need to be ready to defend yourself in that environment because everyone's out for themselves. There, there is no team. The team is being used to promote my own agenda and therefore there really is no team. How about vain conceit? Would you trust a person who thinks that they're better than you? No, why not? We see if, if they think that they are more important than you, that they're better than you, then it's only a matter of time before it logically makes sense to them to use you for their advantage if they really are better than you, then it makes sense for you to serve them. And you can't risk turning your back on this person either. You know, it's only a matter of time before they will use you. So, just as selfish ambition and vain conceit destroys trust, and th- these are natural qualities that rise up in the human heart, we are naturally selfish, we are naturally proud. But just as these two tend to erode and destroy trust on teams, the opposite quality builds trust. What's the opposite quality of vain conceit and selfish ambition? It's this word, humility. It's the decision, it's a very practical decision to treat someone as if they are better than you. Now, they are not, in fact, better than you. Scripture is very clear that we, we all have equal value, but what humility does is it decides... It it makes a decision to right now set aside whatever it is I want so that I can help you accomplish what you want. It acts as if, it considers for this moment as if this person really is better. So I'm going to serve them. I'm going to help them. And for the moment, I will put my interests ahead of yours. When you do that, the level of trust that you build between you and the person that you are serving and helping is... It just grows exponentially. Because they suddenly know that, oh, I can trust this person. They're not just selfish. They don't just think arrogantly. They, they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I can trust them. Yesterday, this campus was full of parents and kids playing basketball. We're in the middle of upward basketball season, so we've got about 350 kids that descend with their families and friends on this campus on Saturday. If you've never seen it, you might want to drive by. Uh, it might be hard to find a parking spot at different times, but it's just it's an amazing thing to watch. And so as I was watching it yesterday for a period of time, I was struck by, I think the most amazing thing is, is all of the, the people volunteering their time to make this happen. The coaches that don't have kids playing, the referees that don't have kids playing, the snack bar workers that don't have kids involved. You know, they're just simply sacrificing their time for free to help out. They're 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 sacrificing whatever they could be doing for that period of time on Saturday, which is a precious day, to get a lot of things done, or to rest. They're sacrificing whatever their agendas, whatever their ambitions might be, so that they can help out, so they can contribute to the interests of some children and their families that they may not even know yet. And by doing that, what they are saying—they're not holding up signs saying this—but what they are saying to to anyone that really is watching is, you can trust me. I'm the kind of person you can trust because I'm not full of myself. I want to be a part of something bigger. So if you want to build trust, act in the best interest of others. Any team you're part of, start acting in the best interest of others and trust will grow. It's amazing. Hard attitude number two, live an honest and open life. Trust is built on Truth. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So again, back to the image of the body of Christ, and it uses the image, the physical image of a physical body, and it says, you know, just like with your physical body, if the body parts start lying, the body stops working. It's the same thing is true with us. We've got to tell each other the truth. We can't lie to each other. I mean, what would happen if the parts of your body, your physical body, started lying to each other? Well there there is a, a term for that condition it's it's a medical condition it's it's a neurological disease. You know a neurological disease occurs when the messages sent by the nervous system are wrong, they're lies, they're not true or or they never get through. 16 years ago, my brother-in-law died of a neurological disease called Guillain-Barré. He was on his way home from work. He was an assistant DA in Manhattan. He was on the subway On his way home, and he started feeling a tingling in his arms, within six hours, he was completely paralyzed. And within three months, he he died. And the reason was because his immune system mistakenly began to see his nerves, all of the nerve endings in his body, as a disease that must be attacked. And so the immune system started attacking his nerves, and there was nothing wrong with his nerves at all. They were not disease, particle, you know, disease cells. They, they were healthy nerve tichu- tissue, but it attacked the nerves. One lie, and his body could no longer function. You know, dishonesty has the less visible but equally devastating effect on relationships. It, it kills. It just kills relationships. In a short period of time, the best relationship can, can end because of dishonesty. It just kills them. Truth is the foundation of trust. If, if I don't know who you are, if I can't be confident that who I'm talking to is who, who what you're representing yourself to be is really who you are, well then I, I can't trust you. So if we are going to work together as the body of Christ, we've got to know the truth about ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to know everything about everybody in order to trust. I mean, that's impossible. Those of us that are married know that even those of us who are married and have been living together and know each other better than anyone else, we know that we're still learning things about the other person. We don't even know everything about ourselves. So you don't need to know everything in order to make a decision of trust. That's impossible. But you need to know enough over time to have reason to believe that the person that is being presented on the outside accurately represents the person who's really there on the inside. That's what's essential. So what that means is, as a church, if we're members of the team here, that means that if, if we're struggling, we don't hide it. You know, a lot of times church can become the place where we all show up and pretend that we're completely together. That is not the way God envisions the church. The church is the place where we can be honest. Now, we don't all stand up on stage and say, well, here's how awful I'm doing. But with a few people that we know love us and we have learned to trust over time, with a handful of people, we're honest. If we're struggling, we don't struggle in private. We don't pretend. We are honest. And that's how trust is built between us. We, we live an honest and an open life. Heart attitude number three. Give and receive scriptural correction. This comes from Ephesians, or Hebrews rather, 3.13. It says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, we tend to think that the word encourage means just to say nice things about other people. But that's not what the word actually means. The word means to motivate with words of truth. Now, we all need this because, well, sin is deceitful. We can be tricked by sin in our lives. We all have blind spots. And so part of what it means to be on this team is not only are we telling the truth about ourselves, but we are asking other people, if you see something, then tell me the truth about me, what you see. You know, I worked for a company for, I think it was about two years, in my 20s, that ended up uh, imploding because there was no giving and receiving of correction allowed in this company. This wasn't a Christian company. This was a a marketing company. Six months after I started with this company, the owner's son suddenly showed up and was put in charge of uh, the production in the back uh, area, a lot of the printing materials that we were putting together, and immediately began to violate most of the company policies that had been set up. So a few of the older employees tried to correct this son and they were immediately reprimanded by the owner. So it was suddenly clear to all of us that the son was not to be corrected about anything, ever. Three years later, that company was bankrupt. Why? Well, there's probably several reasons, but I think the main reason was with that one single act, trust was completely destroyed in the company. Why? Trust in the owner? And the company, policies evaporated. Why? Well, it's because it was clear to everyone pretty early on that now suddenly there were no standards that we were all accountable to that gave us the framework to work together as a team. You see, people just come together and just suddenly work together and accomplish something. There, there's got to be something bigger that, that, that's a framework around which they work together. A set of policies or standards or, or visions, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And everyone started at this point to do and say whatever they wanted to. And no one could call them on it now suddenly. Because if you decide to say, well, wait, we're supposed to do it this way. It's like, hey, he's not. Oh, right. So we're all doing whatever we want to do now, right? Yep, that's what we're doing. So in that environment, productivity declined. Then sales went down. And with it, cash went down. As a church, our policies are not just random statements that we stick on a wall somewhere, our policies are found on the pages of the Bible. God's words provide the framework for our work together. Now, what that means is that we take these things seriously. Now, we we don't run around blowing the whistle on every infraction because we're all flawed, we're all imperfect. But we're serious about these words. And so we invite those who know us and love us to speak up when they see patterns that are out of line with Scripture. And this actually builds trust, a framework that's bigger than us. Now, what this means is that if, if you are personally living in violation of what God has said, it's the pattern of your life, and you're not willing to change. You know that the Bible says this, but I want to do this, and I'm not going to change then you're welcome to continue to attend Seabreeze, to be a part of a lot of what we do, but you're not ready yet to be a member of the team. You're not ready to join yet because you're not willing to submit to the words of Scripture. That's the commitment that we make as team members is no, we're, we're, we're under this framework of what God has said. We don't do it perfectly. We all struggle, but boy, we're, we're willing to have conversations with each other and to give and receive scriptural correction. And that's how trust is built. Number four is clear up relationships. Matthew five twenty three through 24, Jesus says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, well, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is describing here a, a well-known scene. Everyone who heard him say this would know the scene that he's talking about. It played out in Israel's history on an annual basis once a year. It was the trip to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and offer your annual tithe to the altar at the temple of Jerusalem. And this was the pinnacle of the year in Jewish history at the time. And so Jesus is describing a scene where you're standing in this long line because everyone from all of Israel has come to Jerusalem and there's long lines now at the altar. Everyone's got their gift, their, their annual tithe. And you're, let's say you're halfway through the line and you're daydreaming like you would if you're standing a long line like that, and all of a sudden you recall, oh my goodness, that's right, there's, there's this relationship that's sideways. You remember a conflict between you and someone. So what should you do? Well, most people would convince themselves, ah, it's nothing. A lot of people would say, well, it was the other person's fault, so I don't need to do anything. But even if they knew that there was something they could do about it, the, the, the logical thought would be, well... <laughs> I'm in the middle of the line here. Who's going to watch out for my annual tithe, my gift? I, this can wait. I'll deal with this later. And Jesus says, no, you, you should step out of line. And if you can find that person, go and clear up that relationship, reconcile with that person, and then come back and offer your gift. Now, my first thought would be, well, what if my gift isn't there anymore? It's like, Well, the relationship is more important. This is a stunning thing Jesus is saying. Clearing up relationships is a top priority in his mind. The reason is because the trust that exists between you and the other person is too fragile and too important to delay. Whenever we are wronged, trust is damaged. But if the wrong is admitted to and confessed and righted, then trust not only is repaired, it can actually be strengthened. See, whenever someone comes to me and asks me to forgive them, or I go to someone and ask them to forgive me for something I've done wrong, you know what that means? We are admitting that there is a standard that's bigger than either one of us, that we're accountable to. A truth that we violated and must now admit that we violated and must now work to repair the wrong that we've done. And trust does not float in midair. It's something solid. It requires a foundation that's bigger, that's deeper than either of the two of you in this relationship. So if someone will not admit the wrong that they've done, you can't stand on solid ground with them because they are their own standard of right and wrong. They decide what's right and wrong. There's no standard bigger than them. They are floating in moral midair. They make their own rules and so you just can't trust them. There's no common ground on which the two of you can stand and work together. This is why it's important to actually say the words, would you forgive me? When you've done something wrong, you get clear on what it is, it's important to not just say, oh, I'm sorry about all that, but to say, would you forgive me for, and then say what it was, for, for not being honest in this situation, for you know, stealing, for being harsh, whatever it is. Whenever you say, would you forgive me, what you're saying is I'm, I'm pointing to the standard on which we are both standing. The foundation, the, the ground that is solid, that is real and true, and, and I, I'm asking you to forgive me. That immediately begins to build trust. Here's someone that is living to a standard bigger than themselves. So there is a basis on which I can trust them. Now, what we tend to think is whenever we've done wrong, it's like, oh, I can't admit, they're going to, oh, they're going to hate me, they're never going to. Actually, the reverse is true. If you handle it rightly, there's a reason now for them to trust you. Number five, participate in the work of the church. 1 Peter 4.10 says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Have you ever worked on a team with a freeloader? You know, someone who expects kind of all the benefits in the, of the team, the pay, but is unwilling to really do much or any of the work or at least their part of the work? How does, how does that affect the morale of the team? How does that affect trust on the team? Oh, it destroys it. And now not only do the other team members have to do their own work, they have to do his or her work as well. The freeloader's work has to be done now. And if the freeloader remains on the team, if if the leadership does not address the freeloader, they're going to drag down the performance of the whole team. Because what's going to happen pretty quickly is the other people on the team are going to wonder, well, (laughs) if they're not working hard, why should I be working this hard? Why am I knocking myself out if they don't care about the team and they're dragging the team down? Why, Why kill myself? And what happens on a team like that is the shift goes from thinking about how much can I contribute to this effort to how little can I contribute to this effort and stay on the team. And so when it comes to church life, this can happen. Church life easily can become a handful, a small handful of people running around like crazy doing most of the work and while the majority watches and enjoys and applauds and in some cases criticizes so it's no wonder that in that kind of environment it's easy for those who are really trying to carry the load just to get burned out and say, why am I, why am I killing myself? Nobody else seems to, everyone's benefiting and not contributing. Why, why should I? And the morale and the trust just begins to go down. Now thankfully for the most part, this has really not been the case at Seabreeze. So many of you step up weekly and monthly and do your part. And what this verse is talking about that we just read here, if you're, a, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, you have been given a gift, a spiritual gift that's beyond just your personality, beyond your talents, beyond your education. It's, it's, it's something that you've been given by the Holy Spirit to be used in the body of Christ. So if, if you're a Christian and, and you're not leveraging that gift to really help some local church, then that local church is less than what it could be. Just like your body would be if it didn't have all of its parts. It'd be limping. It'd be something less than what it could be accomplished. So we participate in the work of the church if we're team members. Then number six is we support the church financially. This is the other part of the participation. We participate with our time and with our money. The work of God on earth always advances as people give their time and their money. You know, if you, for example, let's say if you've got kids in the kids' ministry right now, my guess is, from what I've seen going on over there, is that they're having a great time learning about God. And that is happening because a number of people have decided to give of their time and their gifting to serve in that ministry. But it's also happening because many of you, regularly give financially to this church, and that allows us to pay the electric bill and the mortgage so that the kids can have a well-lit room to learn about God in. You see, because Edison doesn't take God bucks. They, for some reason, they, they insist on American money, dollars. Now, let me be clear. If, if you're a guest with us, we are, we are happy to pay the price to help you and your kids learn about God. I mean, just, just like when you invite people over to your house for a meal, you don't you don't ask them to pay for an evening's worth of the electric bill, right? You know, as they're leaving, it's like, well, it was a little bit later than I thought, so I think it's going to be about five bucks tonight. No. They're your guests. You're, you're happy to have them in your home. And that's the way we feel about our guests. So th- this I'm talking about this for those who want to join the team. What that means is that you're, you're deciding to help make this part of God's team move forward. And in America... That involves dollars. There's no getting around it. But you know, those of us who are members of the team here, we don't view this as a bill. It's not, okay, <laughs> let's pay a bill to God. No, we, we view this as one of our greatest privileges. And really, Jesus captures the reason we see it as a privilege in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is, you know, when you think of treasure, you think of kind of piling things up here. But everything here can, can be taken, it can be eroded. Stock markets go up and they go down. Jesus says, you know, what you want to really do is you want to, you want to take this life and leverage it in such a way that you come up with treasure that will, will be in heaven. Eternal treasure. That's where your heart really needs to be. Not getting the biggest possible pile you can in this life and watching it erode and watching it disappear when you die, but the treasure in heaven. And so the church is the main way that you can, it's not the only way, but it is the main way that you can turn dollars into eternal treasure. And I'm convinced that I will never regret a single dollar or a single hour spent in the direction of the church. I, I say this unabashedly. I know that when I'm on the other side, I'm going to actually wish maybe I had sacrificed even more. And I imagine you'll be the same. So, as members of the team, we support the church financially, we call it a privilege. And then the last one is we follow leadership in the church within scriptural limits. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Um, I hear there's a couple of football games going on this afternoon. I can see by the jerseys uh, represented that some of you are aware of this. This is actually a great time of year to be a, a football fan because this is when the best teams compete for the top prize, for the championship. And, of course, there's many factors that go into a football team. But there's one phrase that you will hear repeated again and again about the great teams. And it's the phrase buy-in. Buy-in. The players decided to buy-in to the leadership, to the coach. Now, without buy-in, without agreement, it's just a collection of talent, not a team. Now, the problem with buying in to a coach or any kind of leader is whatever the coach says, here's our defensive scheme, here's our offensive scheme, that's not because it's the only possible way to run an offense or the only possible way to run a defense. So there's all different kinds of ways. And a lot of people came from different schemes and they think this is better. But in order for a team to function together, they're going to have to buy in to whatever the particular plan is of the coach. And it seems like buy-in is actually even more important than talent, than the money that's spent on the players. That's just the nature of teams. If the leaders are not trusted, then the team effort will fail, no matter how great the plan is. So what that means is when it comes to this team, the Body of Christ team at Seabreeze, rather than look for ways to you know, criticize and use the church to advance our own agendas. We thoughtfully, I mean, we give input, but we thoughtfully follow the leadership that God has put in place. Now, let me be clear, this is God's team. I'm the senior pastor, but this is not my team. I have a position of leadership, but this is God's team. So if I lead this church out of the boundaries of Scripture, get rid of me, don't follow me. But in order for us to accomplish our mission, We have got to work together, and that requires a very tough thing for us as Americans to do, and that is to follow. It requires widespread buy-in. So this is what it means to join this part of God's team. This may not be the place for you. There may be another church, another part of the body of Christ if you've made a decision to follow Jesus that you need to be part of, but this is what it means here. So now I want to give you the opportunity to join this team. If you've been a team member in the past, This is your chance to renew your commitment to the team. We do this annually because the nature of commitments are they tend to fade. And so we remind ourselves annually, this time of year, this is what we still want to be a part of. So I want to ask everyone to go ahead and take out your connection card. Even if you're not going to be a member of the team, you can just kind of follow along. So you'll notice on the front of the connection card, there's this box that says, I want to become a team member, a 2017 team member. So let me just walk through these three um, statements that you need to make, you need to say yes to if you want to be a member of the team. The first is, I've decided to follow Jesus. Now let me explain briefly what I mean by that, is, is that you have come to the place personally where you have asked Jesus to be your Savior. He is the only answer to your sin. You cannot perform your way out of your sin problem. You can't hope that God will grade on a curve. The only chance you have is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in payment for your sin. If you've come to that point and you've asked Jesus to be your Savior, that's what I'm talking about. The second part of a commitment to follow Jesus is you've also asked him to be your Lord. He's he's the leader. He's your boss. You're not running your own life. Every time you make decisions, you're checking in. What, What does the Bible say on these things? So if you've come to that decision, then you have decided to follow Jesus and then you can just circle yes. If not, That's fine. You can circle no. Or if you're interested, you'd like more information, then just say I'm interested. And we'll get in contact with you and explain a little bit more about what this means. The second commitment is I was baptized following that decision. This is simply what Jesus commanded us to do. He said, when when you decide to follow me, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've not been baptized, we've got a baptism coming up in two Sundays from now, in two weeks, on January 29th. So you can see there, you can just circle that. If you want more information or you want us to sign you up for that baptism. Now, this does not have to be uh, a baptism that's done at Seabreeze. If you were baptized at another church, that's fine. But it does have to have been your decision. If you were baptized as an infant, that was your parents' decision. That's fine. But Jesus indicates that this needs to be your decision. So it had to be your decision. And it needs to be by immersion, which means dunking in the water. That's what the word actually, it's a Greek word, baptismo, means to immerse. That's what the word means. So if you were baptized, whether it was here or uh, at another church in that way, then just circle yes. And then the last one is I commit to live by the seven heart attitudes. This is what we just talked about. So hopefully you have clarity on that, and if you want to commit to that and help us move forward as a team, then circle yes. So just circle uh, yes on these three if you want to be a member of the team. Put it in the offering buckets in just a moment. And welcome to the team. I'm excited about what God might do through us in 2017. And I'm so grateful that so many of you uh, are part of this team and moving things forward with us. So let's pray together. Jesus, uh, this, this is your church. This is your body. And you said that you yourself would build the church, and you have. And we know we know that we're all flawed people. And that we are only qualified to be a part of your body because through your mercy and your sacrifice on the cross, you have forgiven us. And now, amazingly, we get to be a part of what you're doing in this world. And We know that in eternity, what will be read and talked about will not be what we have studied in history, in human history, but what what the church has accomplished and what you've accomplished through us. And so we count it a privilege to be a part of this. We pray that you would move many of us today to step out of the stands and onto the field of play and to take an assignment, to take a role and begin to move this this team forward. We pray that you'd pull us together as a team this year and help us to work in unity in our community. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.